Before we get to Aspen Ideas to Go, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast from The Atlantic called How to Build a Happy Life. Join happiness correspondent Arthur Brooks as he hosts interviews with experts about living a more joyful, meaningful, and intentional way of life. From the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy to meditation aficionado Dan Harris, the show provides a lens into the many ways you can begin to be just that much happier. Find How to Build a Happy Life at theatlantic.com or on your favorite podcast app. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author Anthony Doerr is probably best known for his Pulitzer Prize winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See. Just like that book, his latest work, Cloud Cuckoo Land, features protagonists who are dreamers and outsiders who find hope in the midst of danger. Part of the book is set in Constantinople in the 15th century. Dor began reading about the formidable walls of Constantinople and a rich book culture there. I love to try to chase things that I don't know anything about at the beginning of a project and see if there's something there, there's some like electricity running underneath the material. Today, he talks about the inspiration for his latest book and its focus on technology, destruction, preservation, and humanity's vast interconnectedness. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Winter Words Conversation Series held by Aspen Words. Anthony Doerr's books are both vast and intimate and full of resilient characters. Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is a New York Times bestseller and National Book Award finalist, tells the story of children on the cusp of adulthood in worlds of peril. Their lives are lived in different times and places, but they're connected. That's the focus of the book, how we're intertwined with other species, each other, with those who lived before us, and with those who will be here after we're gone. It's about stewardship of the book, the earth, and the human heart. Dor is interviewed about his book by Mary Beth Keene, author of Ask Again, Yes. Their conversation was held November 3rd. Here's Keene. Hi, Tony. Hi, Mary Beth. Thanks so much for doing this. This is an incredible honor. I accepted this gig mostly so I could ask you all of my own personal questions and ignore everybody who's out there on how you pulled this off. But before I begin with my questions, um, you know, like most people, after I read All the Light We Cannot See, I think, is there anybody in the world who considers themselves a reader and has not read that book? I was waiting for your new book. And while I was waiting, I read your backlist. And I just want to mention quickly, Adrian mentioned all of your um, backlist, but what um, Four Seasons in Rome meant to me, I, I read it after All the Light. So it's a little bit backwards, but I think knowing how things turned out for you and knowing the worry you had in that book and your insomnia, and I was reading it with young kids and you're sort of walking the streets of Rome. And I thought, he did it. You know, he really did it. And it really meant so much to me. And anyway, I wanted to mention that book um, because everyone always mentions these two. There's there's others out there, everyone. That's so um, nice. Very bad. Before we get into Cloud Cuckoo Land and the themes, I guess my first selfish question of many is how you face that blank page, you know, knowing how high the bar was set, knowing you know, how many copies sold and all that stuff? Or is that something you just don't think about? Um, okay, great question. I don't, yeah. If you think about capitalism too much, like it's, I try to work in the mornings, like gotta keep that out of my head. There was more hard to block, especially as 
I was moving towards the end of the book, the, block out the political news of the day or the climate news of the day. So I use an app called Freedom. Mary Beth, have you heard of this app? I have heard of it. I don't even have the discipline to look into it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's $5 or it used to be anyway. And I, you know, you can download it easily and it, it will disable your networking for as many minutes as you tell it to. So on my best mornings, I set that thing to go on at 7 a.m. so that I can't even look at my email. I can't load the New York Times or ESPN.com or whatever I would do with my brain, my butterfly brain, instead of trying to just work in the imaginative world for a few hours. Uh, so that maybe I'll read or try to read a poem or something that usually helps read some Ann Carson or, you know, read some Virginia Woolf, just a couple paragraphs or something, get somebody else's rhythm. Remember the world has larger, bigger questions in it than what did Trump tweet the day before or something and try to get into that kind of headspace. And then hopefully those kinds of questions, I mean, I don't think about setting a bar high or anything like that. I think mostly I'm in terror that I'll get things wrong. Like in The Shell Collector, my first book, for example, I put a snail that doesn't belong in the Indian Ocean, in the Indian Ocean by accident. And I think I heard from one marine biologist about it, like three months after it came out, you're still like, oh, darn it. Like, I wish I had gotten that because, well, you know, all this stuff like authority is based on, you know, the persuasive dream that you're knitting together for your reader is based on your authority. And you don't want to make even those little slips, which wake up a reader and remind her that she's just looking at black marks on a white page. Uh, so you try to get those things right. But then, so the anxiety was more about like all these people in the first printing of all the light. I, um, I have a character listening to a shortwave radio and he listens to Pakistan in 19, I want to say it's like 1937 or something when he gets Pakistan, but Pakistan isn't even founded at that point. So I heard from a lot of readers already. The book was starting to find readers. And so we got that fixed for the second printing, thankfully, but you know, that kind of stuff, that's the more stuff that keeps I use the word um, quiche and fever, which takes place in 1908 through about 1912. And I heard from a lot of people about that. And it really still drives me crazy. And everyone who emails thinks they're being helpful, I think, but it's just awful. You know, I guess I know that. Or teenager. I think I used the word teenager somewhere. It's like, uh, oh, what's wrong? Tell, teach me about that. What, what's wrong with teenagers? I don't think we use the word teenager. It wasn't really in the lexicon until the 50s. Um, but my God, there's so many things. Like, how can you have? Right. We're just one person. That's the thing. I don't have like a room behind this wall of like science. Right, right by that. Don't worry about it. Yeah. We should. We only had egg pies in 1910. Nobody had a quiche. But anyway. Exactly. In that, in that same book, The Shell Collector and The Hunter's Wife, there's a woman who can put her hands on dying animals and sense their visions. Like, I'm not getting any dispute on that <laughs> yeah. supernatural stuff. I'm getting dispute on this snail. And if you're polite, you're like, thank you for your email. I'm going to think about this for the rest of my life. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, this confirms everything I knew about myself. I'm a failure. Right. Shoot. Exactly. I'm no historian. I'm just making it up. Hello. Um, anyway, I'm going to ask the question you've been asked a hundred times, probably this week alone, but, and I hate the question personally, but what is cloud cuckoo land about? It's an impossible question, right? It's, but do your best. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thanks. No, it's not. I'm fine. I'm happy to answer. Um, 
The novel, so the, let me just start at the, like the origin story. This book is about a new technology coming into the world in the 20th century, the radio, and really disrupting things, like uh, challenging the way information is delivered into people's homes and enabling the rise of the Third Reich, really con- the way they could control the truth, in a sense, and change the truth, enabled the destruction of hundreds of thousands, millions of human beings, this new technology that can travel through walls. As I'm reading all about the history of walls, that book set like 60% of it is set in a town called Saint-Malo in Brittany, France. And it's got two kilometers of medieval walls around it and was part of Hitler's crazy project to build this whole defensive system of walls and fortifications, 2,000 miles, Norway, Belgium, Denmark, all the way to the border of Spain and France. Huge megalomaniacal insane project but he poured millions of tons of concrete and there's some of these are amazing moving sad strange pieces of architecture if you go to europe and see some of these fortifications all the texts about the history of defensive walls that i would read or most of them would mention the walls of constantinople which I knew nothing about Mary Beth. Like I, you know, I grew up Catholic too. I went, uh, my mom was a school teacher. I went to a Montessori school. We did study Western civilization, of course, but we kind of would get to the end of the fall of Rome and then zoop, you just like zip to the Renaissance. And the assumption there is like, nothing happened. Nothing was going on at all until the age of discovery. Let's get to Columbus and talk about how the native Americans love Thanksgiving. You know, that's kind of like where, where we grew up or where I grew up anyway. Anyway, so I love to try to chase things that I don't know anything about at the beginning of a project and see if there's something there. There's some like electricity running underneath the material. And so I started reading about the walls of Constantinople. They stood for 1100 years. There were about four miles of land walls, plus these amazing sea walls too. 23 sieges came and failed against these walls. Like barbarians, people on elephants, like uh, this guy Crumb the Bulgar comes, he's drinking like wine out of human skulls and they can't get through the walls. And so the citizens come to believe in them as supernatural. They believe that, you know, the Virgin Mary may have laid the foundation stones. They believe in a sense that they will stand until the end of time. And yet, like all things pass, all change is the only music in the world. And so this young Ottoman Sultan notices this new technology entering Europe, which is gunpowder. He's 19 years old, and he understands that not only could the physical power of gunpowder and cannons bring down these walls, but the psychological power of them could be just as effective. So he has this master founder found these cannons. A lot of this is in the novel. Uh, but even at that point, as I'm learning that, as, as I'm reading about this, this wet, muddy spring when they're dragging these thousands and thousands of pounds of cannons and cannonballs and this huge army to the city of Constantinople to really change the, the nexus of European and Asian history, I still don't know if I've got what it takes to write a long, years-long project until I read about book culture inside the city of Constantinople. Because those walls stood for so long, libraries were allowed to build some continuity over time. Of course, fire was a huge danger in almost all of human history. It's so interesting how we take fire departments for granted and how um, rare it is to, for people to lose their homes. But fire all through history came for the houses of the rich and the poor. Uh, and the Imperial Library of Constantinople, we do know it burned. I think at least we know for sure it burned once. But at certain points, we know it exceeded over 120,000 volumes. Plus, there were monastic and private libraries in the cities, in the city. And uh, it really allowed 
for the last copies of ancient Greek and Latin, ancient Roman texts to survive uh, because some gentle steward, some librarian, some schoolmaster decided not to scrape off like the last copy of something Plato wrote or the last of one copy of this play by Aeschylus, say, and they decided to recopy it and kind of keep it alive. And so I think in a way, that's kind of how the, what the book is about for me. It moves along this continuum of new technologies and disruption. And maybe one side is like erasure and destruction, and one side is preservation, conservation, and stewardship. And these little gestures that people make centuries ago affect our lives. And what decisions are, are Mary Beth and I making small decisions now that might allow future generations to have a richer life or more access to culture or a more pleasant temperature to live in. Uh, so that was really the genesis of the novel. I didn't quite get to all the characters, but two characters, yeah. Anna. You inside began the with Omer and Anna? That's it. I began with okay. Anna and Omer. Anna's a girl inside the walls of the city. And um, she's a 15th century girl with very, very few resources, but she chafes at being told what to do. So there's a lot of me and her in that sense. And she uses story to kind of slip outside the walls of the city uh, and is uh, a girl growing up at a time. There were times I learned in the Byzantine Empire when girls were encouraged and allowed to become literate. But she, this is the late Byzantine Empire. It's just boys who are being taught to read rich boys. And so she manages to get herself literate uh, at a later age than we might be used to. You know, she's uh, seven and eight at that time. And then there's a boy, yeah, who's in, conscripted into the Ottoman army and is part of this huge, um, this monstrous provisioning of the Ottoman army, but with his two oxen dragging these huge cannons to the walls. So they were my favorite, I have to tell you. I've read a lot of reviews. People love Constance, as I did um, they love Zeno, but my heart was with Omir and those, those oxen, that moment, this is what I think. So I've, I've looked into, you know, this is a big gig for me. So I've, I've been doing some research and this is the thing I'm afraid that readers don't know. It's so, it's such a smart book. Clearly your mind is so nimble. You're pulling this, that, and the other, but when you read the book, you know, I'm the type of person to honestly, if I'm confessing, if I see a map, or a family tree at the start of any book, I'll just skip it. You know, I'm, I'm never going to look at that. And I figure if I can't figure this out without referring to that, then this is not the book for me. And so I read this not knowing where I was being led, but I felt like I was in such trustworthy hands that I kept going. And there's a moment with Omir, you know, when he's born, I don't, I'm a notorious plot spoiler, so I don't want to do that. But there's a moment early on, it's part of his character. I think it's okay. He's yeah. born with his face is disfigured and his grandfather brings him out in the rain up to the mountaintop and he comes back and he says, I could not leave him. You know, that's like around, yeah, I don't know, age 40s or something. And I thought like, that's the part that sort of collapses time you know, that brings the part that's in the future to the past. And to me, you know, no amount of describing can sort of capture that. You have to read it, you know, you have to feel it and feel all of those people. Um, and so you have Omir, you have Anna, you have Constance in the future. Uh, if, are, are we allowed to go through all the characters, I guess? We have Zeno, we have Seymour. Um, I'd love to talk about the end, but we can't do that. So who is your favorite, if, if you're allowed to say? 
yeah, well, I don't have favorites. I think uh, oh, I think you owe it to your characters, even the bad actors, to invest as deeply in them as somebody like Anna, who's mostly making good decisions, although she decides to become a thief at certain points in the story. Uh, but I think I think every invention that you make in terms of a human being, you owe it to divine their find their humanity and um you know i can i've seen see you do that with say uh somebody who's maybe mentally troubled uh you know you owe it to dive into their minds it might be harder in a way as a writer but uh, i think you owe it to your reader to do that but yeah folks who have no idea what we're talking about there's five main characters in this crazy book and i'm trying to spin all five plates in the reader's mind and so i, I just had those two so like this book has a kind of a b a b back and forth structure uh, I vary the structure in places, but it's like a tennis match. You're moving back and forth in these quick little chapters between these two characters. And here I'm building like a star shape, five, five points. And so uh, there's tons of anxiety about whether or not a reader is going to be able to feel oriented, whether I'm going to need to provide Mary Beth with like this huge chart or not, because I desperately don't want to. Uh, so anyway, let me just talk about how I get there. I think I'm about 11 months into the project, and I realized that I want Anna to find what might be the very last copy of a very old book and save it uh, as the city's being destroyed uh, without the, the texts from Constantinople spilling out into the Arab and European intellectual worlds in the 14th, 15th century, especially in the 15th century. We might not have a Renaissance. This is this resurgence we see in classical philosophy, drama, poetry probably happens because all those texts have been preserved inside those libraries. I decide to have her save this copy, but I, I decide that the only way to really dramatize, to have a reader feel the power of that decision is to show it land in the hands of a character or characters who will be alive and on this earth long after she's gone. And so I look for another time in which new technologies are vastly and rapidly disrupting things. Remember, the printing press is also about to arrive in the 15th century and the compass. So there's a bunch of big changes happening in the Western world at that time. And so I looked at our time. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, both of us are parents. You, you see what the digital world is doing and the difference between the way you and I grew up and the way our kids are growing up. Uh, those differences are so substantial. Uh, I wanted to try to explore some of that. And of course, also explore disinformation and climate change. And so I invent two characters, Zeno. Uh, he's an octogenarian at the opening of the book and Seymour. And both of them, this book that Anna saves falls into their lives at certain points when they need it most. And then um, a couple months later, I decide I'm also going to have a fifth reader. I'm going to go for like the, the Catholic three, the, the past, present, and future. The, you know, it's like maternity. Exactly. And so this was a scary moment for me, Mary Beth, because I don't, I don't really know how to build a world in the future exactly. But I just thought I'm going to have this girl living in a time when the promises and the dangers of artificial intelligence are intersecting with climate chaos, the promises and the fears of pandemics. This is a lot of this is written, being written before our own pandemic arises in 2020. And so I have this, um, this girl living at another time when technology is disrupting things. And her name is Constance. That's crazy that you wrote that before the pandemic. I mean... There are so many echoes. I mean, even each character seems to feel certain they're living at the end of some sort of civilization, right? Like it's 
it's the end of life as we know it for you know Omer and Anna and then in the present day and then for Constance and it really is but at the same time it made me think about you know some of the bigger moments that I've lived through September 11th is one the, this pandemic the last 18 months and there was this chorus of people you know some of our fellow writers who felt that what we're doing felt silly you know in the face of so much tragedy and so much death and all of that and I really feel the opposite, you know, but it's such a gut response, you know, how important storytelling is to survival, to understanding one another and all that. And that's also in this, in this book. I mean, wouldn't you say that's, that's it. That's the whole. And so as a defense of storytelling, I could hand someone cloud cuckoo land. Oh, good. Thanks. I, I hope so. I mean, yeah, there are many other examples of it, of course, but that, that culture abides, it's really a powerful and important thing. I think there are so many generations that have felt like they're living at the end of things. Certainly the citizens inside Constantinople in 1453, these enormously loud, like, you know, there, there was fears that the cannons were so loud that uh, a woman who was pregnant would lose her baby. Like that's how this noise is so new to them. And this level of destruction, they feel like they're living at the end times and that the, the realm of you know, the reign of God on earth is coming to an end. Uh, and of course, you know, you think about, um, you know, the cold war and kids being forced to go under desks and, but really my, this novel in some ways was a response to watching my kids. They were, it took me seven years to write this thing and twin boys and they were 10 to 17 while I was working on it. And they were taking a lot of dystopian narrative. Uh, like every time, you know, you go downstairs, they're either reading the hunger games or they're yeah. like, watching squid game on tv right now and you you know or it's like all these marvel movies where there's just like oh another planet exploded here's another city totally in flames and you're like how many hundreds of thousands of people are like dying in this scene uh so i wanted to ask when i learned that aristophanes 2400 years ago had written this play called the birds in which these two doofuses decide to leave athens and found a new city in the sky called cloud cuckoo land at least that's how it's trickled down eventually into the english language as cloud cuckoo land nephilococuia is the greek i thought here's a utopian narrative maybe the first utopian narrative from the western world that's written down but there's all kinds of interesting old utopian folk tales in Chinese history and Indian history about, you know, faraway places where there is no suffering. And what is it about humans that we tell these stories about long journeys to kind of magical places where there's lots of food, everybody's equal, uh, and you get to live a really long time or live forever. Uh, and so I wanted to try to ask dystopian questions like you're suggesting, you know, the way we feel during Hurricane Katrina or during 9-11, the way we feel maybe a lot of us during the pandemic or the dispute about the last election. And then at the same time, what, what do utopian stories mean? What does it mean to dream of better places? And I think even though sometimes, especially in British English, you can be disparaged for saying you live in cloud cuckoo land, like get your feet on the ground, your head's in the clouds. There's also something really beautiful about dreaming of better places. And I think it's important to ask kids in particular, you know, what's your utopia? What kind of stuff would be better? Like maybe it's our country's better about owning up to its history, or maybe it's a place of renewable energy, or maybe it's a place where everybody has access to warm clothes or food or whatever, just getting kids to think through that stuff rather than always incorporating stories about you're at the end of things. You know, I think that's, that's an important thing to do. I also thought it was interesting that each of these characters has a homecoming of sorts. Nobody leaves for good. You know, they all come home. I didn't know what to do with it exactly, except that it meant it felt important. 
you know, and home is never quite the same, you know, as it was when they left. But, um, you know, I thought that was also a, a lovely theme in the I'll book. Show you, I'll show you some drawings. So here's like an early idea. This is called a Penrose Pentagon. And that oh kind God. of can give you a sense of like the five characters and early sense of it, of what I thought of the book. And here's another one. Like, this is what I wanted the reader to do is like make sense of this circular puzzle. Yeah, that's what I did. That's what it looks like. <laughs> okay, good. I think I have it in here, but I might not. But what I wanted was this sense of the sphere here. Anyway, here's a drawing of early Constantinople. People want to see it. That's a little backdrop. You get a sense of the walls, but maybe I don't have it, but I had this series of concentric spheres that I had just printed off the internet. It's really just think of a bullseye or all these circles nested inside one inside the other. And I thought of each of the characters' stories as kind of circular in the way that Odysseus's story, one of the oldest patterns in Western storytelling is you leave home, you have a bunch of struggles trying to return home and you return, just like you said, you return change. You can never step foot in the same river again. And so I wanted somehow to have each of the characters under siege. Anna is inside the siege of Constantinople. Uh, this book is a way for her to slip the trap of this nightmare she's in. Constance is under siege by this pandemic. I hope that doesn't spoil too many things in the future. And then there's these children with Zeno and Seymour. They're under siege in a rural public library in an invented town close to where I live in Idaho. Um, and so all of them kind of have circles drawn around them. And yet, and they're traveling in a circle, and yet they use this story inside the story, Cloud Cuckoo Land, to try to transcend that. And um, for me, that's what reading has represented all my life. So it's an homage, like you said, to storytelling, because it's been a way for me to expand and multiply my own experience on earth, to, to leave the walls of my own boring head, not boring, but this, my single head where, you know, where you feel like you're the center of things and to be reminded like, oh, other people cry for the same reasons. And other people 500 years ago have a hard time abandoning a baby in the snow. You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking through. And it's an argument sort of, I'm thinking of Seymour and when he works for Ilium, what was it called? Ilium. Um, yeah. And how his impulse is to, not smooth things over the way he am stop me when I seem like I'm spoiling a plot, but you know, like he has an impulse to show the world as it is, you know, he starts um, not doing the job that he is paid to do and just leave these little nuggets of truth there. And those, I guess, you know, it hasn't been cleansed the way that it was supposed to be, but those moments of um, imperfection are what end up meaning the most to Constance, right? When she's, and so that's what we are craving. So do we really want utopia? You know, do we really want the land? We want each other and our imperfections, right? That's um, it. You're amazing. Mary I'll Beth. go on the rest. I'll we'll take over the rest of your tour. You can take a break. It's yeah, I would love to be, I mean, it's just now getting to the point where some readers have finished the book, but of course, I, in these events, I have to be careful because I would love to have those no. Well, I, I would love to talk about the end, but I can't. Um, the other but thing I read, what we can talk about, cause we're roughly the same age is what, what you're talking about really is a journey of middle age for me is acceptance is so much of what I'm trying to deal with now. And the biggest acceptance is that I'm going to die. Like that this whole thing is falling apart. And like, I need these now, like I have to put these on to read Mary Beth Keene. I'm like, wait, what <laughs> happened to me? And I, I think watching your children for those of us who are lucky to be enough to be parents or wanted to be parents it's 
it's another decentering. It's another moment where you're like, oh, right, it's their generation that's more important than ours. Um, and so well, I think- doesn't that bother you more lately? Like when <laughs> I think of myself dying, it doesn't bother me as much as thinking about them dying. Of you course. Know, I, and it, I guess that just goes on and on. I guess that's middle age too. Yeah, I think- Sorry, but I interrupted you. Perfect. No, what you're saying about accepting imperfection is this journey I think I'm on. And it really maybe ties back to our beginning jokes about accepting that, yeah, sometimes you're going to use teenager in a historical novel. It's like, that's, that's life. Like we're humans and uh, we want to fix everything, but we're part of the problem at the same time. And I think that's also been my journey on trying to understand the environmental movement and trying to understand what can our responses be to climate change. When at the same time, I evolved to want to eat a hamburger. You know, it's like there's every part of me is like, eat meat. That seems good. You never know when winter's coming. Uh, so you have to always be working on yourself and accepting yourself. At, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to accept that I'm going to die, but I'm trying. I'm working on it. Um, this is a craft question, I guess. But I read somewhere that your particular style, um, these short you know, I don't know how many chapters there are. There's like a bazillion, 50, 40 something chapters. Yeah, 400 in this book, 400 little chapters. Oh my God. So that's a lot of chapters, but they're each <laughs> miniature world that you can feel and see. And then you get the next one, the next one. I read somewhere that you said part of that style was sort of came out of being a young parent and having maybe no time or getting interrupted or getting. So do you see as your kids get older, your style changing again? Or is that something you just can't anticipate and you can't predict and it'll just happen if it happens? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think first, maybe that was too flip of an answer to that journalist whenever I answered that question, because it's true. It does fit your day when, especially when the kids are tiny and there's twins and you know, you're so busy and you're just trying to get your partner some piece that you're like, okay, I've only got 90 minutes to work on this and I'm only going to get through 600 words. I'm going to try to make the 600 words as polished as I can. But there's also some aesthetic interest in it too. I love this book called Platero y Yo. In Spanish, it's Platero and I, about a donkey. It's an amazing little collection. It's from 1925-ish. Um, his name was uh, Juan Jimenez. Anyway, Platero y Yo beautiful series of vignettes about a man in the Andalusian countryside with his donkey. And it's the same thing that Olga Tsarczyk, who won the Nobel Prize, this amazing Polish poet, she just gave, Polish fiction writer, she just gave a really amazing Nobel lecture, if you want to find it online, about the form of a constellation, this idea of building larger things like a mosaic out of smaller, pretty things. And how the gaps in between them allow for really interesting um, moments for the reader's imagination. This, there's of course gaps between sentences, gaps between words. You're always playing with what's not on the page as well as what's on the page. But this movement that can happen between sections, between chapters is really interesting to me. Platero and Yo is kind of like the house on Mango Street by, by Sandra Cisneros in that it could be read as a series of prose poems. You could enjoy one before bed just ripped randomly out of the book. But when you read them together, they take on even more power in a way, um, in the way that 
just the the blocky paragraphs of Dickens say don't quite. It's just I don't know. There's some difference in that constellation form that really appeals to me. I was also in love with Italo Calvino in my twenties, and he'll do a bunch of that. There's a book called Invisible Cities where he's playing with that kind of form too. Uh, so part of it was practical, but part of it, I think, yeah. is also just I love to shape them. I love to print them out and put them on the carpet and kind of see how they fit together and how the end of one might flow into the next. The way you can leave one character in suspense where she's kind of hanging in a reader's mind. And maybe that actually builds a little power while she's swinging back and forth in a reader's subconscious as the reader goes to the next character. I know there are, however, many risks. Some readers will feel locked out by the rapid switching as for the future, Mary Beth, I don't know, maybe it's the same as you. You don't really know what shape each project kind of demands its own shape. And so uh, I would love to push myself to try something totally different, maybe just this monolithic text with no white space or something. Uh, but I find myself really liking that. You can feel a little progress at the end of, of a day or a week if you've built at least one chapterette that you feel like is functioning. And I think something about the juxtaposing as opposed to drawing strong you know, bridge, you know, leading a character really explicitly from one thing to the next, I think it ends up implicating the reader in a story, you know, because they're doing some of the work. And so the onus is on them to build those bridges and make those connections. And I think, I think that's at least part of maybe why it works. Yeah. So outline, I'm sensing an outline vibe from you. Do you, do you outline when you write or do you just go for it? Uh, no, I definitely don't go for it. I'm too scared. I'm too anxious of a person to just go for it. Uh, that said, I will. It's kind of like if you head out on a walk and you're like, I feel pretty good. Like, let's see how far I go today. But usually by a third of the way through the walk, I'm like, how far am I going? Like, I might get hungry, you know? So often I think, I think I've got it. You know, you have this initial burst of energy on a project, uh, but maybe, 20%, 30% of the way through, you start asking yourself, okay, where, where am I going to end up? Mm -hmm. Americans love efficiency. We love to figure out like, what's the most efficient way? I'm the worst. I'm like, well, let's stop driving around the parking garage. Like we got to just park right here. Uh, but you have to, as an artist, and I know you know this, you have to embrace inefficiency to a certain extent. You have to say like, I'm going to write a bunch of stuff that's going to have to get pulled out later. I'm just going to have to write the stuff to get it out, to understand these people. Yeah. But ultimately an outline, I, I have this map that people have been interested. In. I can show it to you. This was later in the project, but it's a way to say, when I start drawing kind of graphical representations of what I'm making, it's a way to try to say, can I be a little more efficient here? I will rarely write something in the order in which a reader reads it. So often I'm working on end material and then I've got to build the bridging material towards that. But you can get a sense anyway of how crazy my brain is. This is an early map of Cloud Cuckoo Land. And you can see the, the Greek characters, the 24 Greek characters. That's the Cloud Cuckoo Land story running through the middle. And then the five characters, Anna, Omir, Constance and Zeno and kind of how they braid together, you know, but you don't arrive at this on day one or anything. You just start outlining in the evenings or something when you're like, what is this thing I'm making? Yeah. I keep what about you? Do you draw stuff out like that? Uh, no, I don't do anything of what you just said. Nope. I'm starting. This is like a tutorial for me. Here are all the things I should do. No, I, no, I don't. I think there's as many ways to do it as there are. I mean, I'm a person who takes a walk and I'm eight miles away and I have no money and no phone. And I'm like, gosh, 
um, I need the water, you know, and that's more <laughs> lines up with my writing style, I think. Um, and so I think I'm really fascinated with how other people do things because I am, I'm sure that I'm inefficient, but I think that's just the way it has to be. I've learned that it's not a waste of time. It's just how I get to where I need to be, I guess. Um, right. That's acceptance. Totally. I totally agree. Yeah. I'm seeing some great, um, audience questions. One that kind of dovetails with a a comment, I guess I had, um, this is from Elizabeth Nix. I read somewhere that Anthony writes thinking about only one reader, his wife. Is this true? And why is she the only reader he considers? Before you answer, I want to say that I felt I got to know your wife a little through reading Four Seasons in Rome. Um, and one of the things when my students or other people ask me, like, what's the single most important decision, you know, you have to make if, if you want this to be your life. And I think that is to pick the right partner. You know, it's to read nonstop, but also you can't be with someone who doesn't think you should be doing this. You know what I mean? And so I got that sense from her too. But anyway, is it true that you think of only one reader when you're, when you're writing? Uh, yeah, that's, well, that's so beautiful. That's so interesting about the partner thing. We should totally talk about that. She is an amazing partner and supporter and shrink and editor and friend and everything. Um, yeah, I think that might be a slight overstatement, but certainly I think about her. She's my first reader of everything, even like just an 800 word newspaper essay. Um, you know, I wrote columns for the Boston Globe for 10 years on science books. She'd read those. Uh, lots of times I'm writing even just an interview for some promotional thing now for a magazine, and I'll have her read those. Um, I think what's so wonderful about Shauna is she doesn't have that formal training. Like You went to University of Virginia, right? For my MFA, yeah. But yeah, and I went and got an MFA too. I went to the Bowling Green State University. It was the only place that let me in with any funding. So I'm like, okay, I'll go here. And it was an amazing opportunity to kind of learn how to articulate things that I new going in, which is that we all have experienced stories since we were babies. And so we can all feel when they lag, or we can all feel when our interest phrase, or we can all feel when you unfold the huge family tree and you're like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, we all feel those things. And so Shauna's the ideal reader because she may not have that formal language to say like, well, you're using the objective correlative here, but right. she, she can tell me like, this is slow or uh, I can just watch and see. I'm like, oh, she's turning pages quickly. Or um, plus she's so detail oriented. She can help me with like, oh, you overused the word spill three times on this page. Um, ultimately though, I also try to keep in mind a reader that who I will never meet. Somebody who I can't lean over her shoulder and say, oh, oh you're missing something. Um, because ultimately you want to move totally towards a reader on the bus in Tampa, Florida, who is never going to meet you, never going to attend a Zoom event. And can you keep her engaged? And can you get this drug of story slipped into her blood enough that she's also asking bigger questions about what it means to be human or what it means to be alive on this earth for such a short time? Uh, and so that's my ultimate goal, I think, is to move even beyond the walls of our house into the life of somebody who I might never meet. Wow. Yeah, my poor husband, I don't have him read the early drafts because it's a lose-lose for him. If he, has, <laughs> if he says it's good, I think he phoned it in. And if he says it's not, I'm like, what do you imagine you know about writing fiction? You know, and then it's like, a, 
And then it's a whole thing, but he is. I guess I should say that I will get it to a place where I know there's plenty wrong with it, but I can no longer really articulate what those things right. are. So it's not early drafts. It's like draft number 17 or right. something. Yeah. Then at least it's before it goes to New York and that whole scary world. But right. at least, you know, I'm, I'm able to say this is a safe ish place. Please help me instead of I'm going to be mad. In that yeah. kind of feeling, Just you know? saying like, I'm bored here, this section I'm lost or I'm confused, or I don't care about this person. I mean, it's such an enormous help and you have to be willing to listen. Absolutely. Um, I'm looking at some other questions that have come in from the audience. Uh, which of the storylines came easiest? Hmm. Zero. Um, you always have these moments at the beginning where you have really uh, high enthusiasm and then you write yourself into a corner. You're like, oh, no, I don't know what Anna would wear on her feet in 1452. Crap. Uh, I've got to go work on that. Uh, you know, did embroidery houses work on Sundays? How did they even deal with the days of the week? Was there even a calendar that we would recognize? How did they keep time? And suddenly you're two sentences in and what you thought was this exciting thing about a girl reading a story about a city in the clouds is suddenly like you're trying to figure out what bells would be sounding in Constantinople 600 years ago. Uh, that's true in the present too. Um, Seymour, who has a lot of my traits, very sensitive, very attached, maybe to more to animals and trees than to like people. I'm like the person at the cocktail party who's like in the coat room petting the dog. Uh, you know, that that stuff I thought would come easier to me. But then he I, th I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say like he commits an act of violence and you get into that. and You're like, oh, my gosh, I really have to think through what this means. And uh, so I think that's OK. No, nothing really ever comes easy right is that true right. no <laughs> yeah they all take i think research that you don't anticipate um which is funny because the historical novels i think always get that question how difficult was the research and i always think that contemporary stuff takes just as much research i think people don't realize that right and outside the research sometimes to write yourself into depth it just takes time you know the great gift of uh, like a marilyn robinson novel is like she's like a bricklayer. She's masoning afternoon after afternoon after afternoon of contemplation and observation and work into something that you can read it's so concentrated. And yet you can read it in the space of a couple of hours or three hours. And I think that's just so beautiful. That's what, why the books I'm drawn to the most are these acts of generosity, because it's all this concentrated time and struggle and thinking. And then you present it to your reader in a time that she gets to read it in a few evenings. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, another question. So many of your narrators are children. Um, why is that? And how do you channel that voice in your work? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, first I wish I'm interested in trying narrators who are children. I, I, the last three books, including memory wall before this, I've got a third person narrator who's diving into the heads of kids here and there. And the protagonists are children for sure, but they're not the narrators. I love, and I'm fascinated by writers who can make their first person narrators kids and try to embrace that language. There's a great book called Jim the Boy, for example, that's leaping in my mind by Tony Early, that um, those kinds of books that use the language of kids are really interesting, very, very, very difficult to write, at least for me. But yeah, why am I choosing child protagonists? Uh, I have a lot of reasons, I think. One is that my kids, I really started this around the time my kids were born. 
But the other is, I think, going back to our discussion about getting older, um, as you get older, you habit starts to encrust your days and you, um, you stop paying attention to things that once seemed totally dazzling and absorbing and astonishing. And that's okay. Habit helps us get through our lives very much so, but there are days when you blink and you're like, it's November. Wait, is it really November now? And so kids being around kids and writing from the point of view of kids, it helps me remember the astonishingness of the world that Heidegger said that the world is worlding around us all the time. And uh, I think that's such a joy, the way you still have like a 10 year old at home, like when they're, they're just still interested in being with you. It's just this amazing time when they're like, yeah, the grocery store, grocery store's great, Mary Beth, let's do it. Like, you know, that's what my kids used to be like. And it's such a special time when the world feels new and, and because they don't see how blood and history have soaked into the ground, they just see how the turf has healed over and erased so much of the suffering of the world. That's how we remake the world. And it's kind of this beautiful thing. It's that that's what mortality is. And that's why the erasure of memory is both terrible and really important kind of at the same time. Yeah. And they're observing everything. They're taking everything in and processing it in their own way. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, looking uh, some others. Um, ooh, when you're, when you finish writing a book, are you exhausted or inspired to write the next one? Uh, really nice question. Thanks for the question. It's a complicated answer. Uh, often I do feel that really, because at that point, you're probably in this wonderful creative groove where you're working maybe seven days a week or six days a week. And you, you, the whole world kind of starts to pulse and vibrate with relevance because you're pulling from things you see, you're pulling from things you read, things you're watching on TV or something, you, you know, a painting you might see, everything becomes kind of relevant to your project. That's this beautiful creative place to be. Uh, so I don't feel drained about that, but I immediately feel drained by the Oh, oh, the public is going to make start judging something I made, or now it's time to find out if people are interested or like the thing I made. And that can be, you just start to have to make yourself vulnerable. And that's super scary. I'm more comfortable just being in my hoodie, trying yeah. to make stuff and play around with language. So that can be brutally exhausting. I'm finding that especially with the, on top of the pandemic and trying to go through the editing of the novel and start thinking about like, Oh, reviewers saying things about it. That was far more exhausting. I think than actually maybe finishing the book. Yeah. I bet. Um, Do you feel that? I, Cause don't you have, haven't you sent in a manuscript recently? I did. Yes. Uh, but the moment I send in a manuscript, I start thinking of all the stuff I want to change. <laughs> so I just asked for it back and I'll have, a couple more weeks because it, you know, I'm like, this is what should happen actually. And everything becomes clarified once it's not in my hands anymore. So um, poor Kara has had to be a little bit patient, but it will get there. I just don't like letting go because then you've really let go. And then, you know, I don't, you can't touch it that many times after this. I mean, I still have some room, but um, I yeah. like this, this part, you know, just then you have to accept it. its imperfections. It's just like getting old. Then you have to accept like, oh yeah, it's just going to be what it's going to be. I have to let it go. And I think that's really, really hard for me to know like, oh, they printed this thing. Like now it's printed. Like all this stuff in here is fixed. It's too scary for me. Yeah. I don't ever look at it once it's in a, um, 
between hardcovers. I don't ever reread it. I've never listened to audio. I don't oh. want to get into any of that. You know, oh, the audio thing is so terrifying. I'm so grateful to the reader, the actor who's doing it. But at the same time, you're like, oh, I can't listen to a word. It's just too much. It all feels it's like listening to yourself on a voicemail, except way worse, you know, except, you know, I'm also very grateful and appreciative to the actors, but it's just so odd. It's just an odd experience. Um, let's see. I think we have time for one more question. Um, what's a question that's no one that no one has asked you that they that you wish they would is there anything oh there's so many but i'm just worried a little bit about talking about the ending and like things that happen in the novel so let me think about things earlier i tried to make the book something that you can read to find out what's going to happen but that if you reread it or you're reading more slowly you can feel all this boxes within boxes so i do wish i got a few more questions about metafiction um, you know, in graduate school, like maybe many 20 year olds, I don't know. I fell in love with Borges and Nabokov, John Barth, these writers who would play with making the reader aware that storytelling is an artifice, that we're in agreement that we're going to make things up, but we're going to try to get at truths by making things up. So I've got, I've strung all this stuff through the novel, like Zeno standing in the aisle in this little library between fiction and nonfiction and uh, the, the novel inside the novel that I've, I've based this whole thing, Cloud Cuckoo Land, on a real writer's lost book. There was a writer in the first, we think the first century of the common era named Antonius Diogenes, same initials as mine, who wrote novels. We think they're... Um, we know for a fact there were five ancient Greek novels because we have them. And we know, we know of the titles of about 20 others. And we think that uh, we used to kind of dismiss them and the sixties and seventies scholars would dismiss them as inferior to classical poetry and drama, but they're really starting to be understood as kind of playful fiction. They're playing with fictionality in these texts. And the book that is lost that Antonius Diogenes wrote was called the wonders beyond Thule, T H U L E. It was composed in 24 books, and uh, it he claimed in a preface, apparently, the only way we know all this, Mary Beth, is that a reviewer inside Constantinople in the ninth century, I think it's the ninth century, wrote a review of this book. And so then the book, imagine this like the worst horror story for us, because then the book vanishes, the book's 700, 800 years old at that point, vanishes from the world entirely, but we still have this review of the book. <laughs> And it suggested that it was divided in 24 books that it involved a trip around the world that in a preface, Diogenes claimed he discovered it in a tomb. Mark stranger, whoever you are, open this to learn what will amaze you. And so he's playing with fictionality. He's like, wink, wink, you, you read or you know, there's like magic things happening in this book. They go all the way to the north of the planet. They may even go to the moon. There's some arguments that this was the first science fiction book ever written. And yet you know, this is somebody who's playing with the same stuff Nabokov and Borges are playing with, and it's 1900 years old. So I think if there was any question, I'd love to be asked more about that stuff. There's a lot of boxes within boxes, books within books, memories with inside heads, people inside libraries, books inside libraries. And there's this whole thing called the Atlas, which is kind of this reimagining of Google Earth, really. Um, so I'm always playing with like stepping into a world inside of a world inside the novel. And so Maybe later I'll start getting those questions when more folks have read it. 
maybe from now on. Um, did you study ancient? I know I said that was the last one, but did you study much Greek before you? I mean, or did you at all during this? Oh wow! I, I did during the book, but no. Uh, when we were when the, we were thirty, I think we were lucky enough to win this amazing thing called the Rome Prize, where they sent us to the American Academy in Rome. The babies were just born. That's the genesis of this novel, right. of this memoir. You were so nice to talk about Four Seasons in Rome. But that was my first time around classicists, people who could read. Like these people can read Latin. They can walk around the city of Rome and it's like a book to them. They can like, make sense of all these inscriptions and see, you know, tombstones and understand like who is buried there. I love that stuff. So that was my first exposure to people who could read ancient Greek. And so I tried to learn a little bit. And I watched these YouTube classes and I had a professor at Notre Dame, Denis, this guy, great guy who helped me with the novel, but no, I couldn't. There's some pretty cool tools online. If anybody gets really into it, where you can see the first page of the Odyssey in ancient Greek and in English and try to work through each word and see the decisions that translators make. I think it is a really important exercise because you realize how important translators are and how they really are this conduit from the past to the present. And how if we can, of course, they're also translating Mary Beth Keene right now, like it's important. They're, they're also conduits between continents and cultures. But when a, when, a, when a translator updates a book, it's so important. Like Emily Wilson has got this brand new translation of the Odyssey, maybe it's three years old now. And it's beautiful. It's muscular. And it's, it's like a novel that you can read in about two nights. And it's so, I so want that book to be in schools because it's not, it doesn't feel antiquated and old and it it re-injects blood and life into those old stories. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Anthony Dorr, I absolutely loved this book. I hope that came through. And um, I thought it was full of so much hope and resilience and about how beautiful humans are. And I just hope that a gazillion people read it. Anthony Dorr's most recent novel is Cloud Cuckoo Land. He also wrote the novels All the Light We Cannot See and About Grace. His story collections include Memory Wall and The Shell Collector, and he's the author of the memoir Four Seasons in Rome. Mary Beth Keene is the author of The Walking People, Fever, and most recently, Ask Again Yes, which spent eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Their conversation was part of the Winter Words series held by Aspen Words. This season's event includes upcoming conversations with Heather Hansman, Clint Smith, Richard Powers, and others. Find out more at aspenwords.org. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by Aspen Words and produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.